Lord, we thank you for this opportunity tonight to look into your word, to consider uh, your entire word and what you have to say on this topic of, of uh, is it just about food or what's going on here? What's the heart of the, the issue here? And so we thank you for this opportunity to look at this. Pray each of us would be enlightened and learn something. And just pray you'd speak through, through Rabbi Chaim to all of us. In Yeshua's name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Please turn to Leviticus 11, verses 40 to 45. And, uh, Let me know. And Zidasa, could you read it for us? And I have to be able to hear you from this side of the room, so. speak about dietary food in, at least in traditional uh, Jewish um, approach to, to these dietary laws, there are a couple of words uh, that are not mentioned in, uh, in the Torah explicitly. Um, well, one of them is, um, first of all, the word kosher, kasher, uh, which means that which is fit, and treif loosely means that which is not fit. Um, actually, treif um, comes from a word that has to do with an animal that is found in a field um, which has uh, died violently. And uh, so, um, at least outwardly, the discussion can seem like a very um, cut and dry, uh, somewhat legalistic. Um, and you, you remember, we've talked about the notion of the fence around the Torah. Yes? Okay. Uh, and you understand that, like everything else having to do with 
spirituality and religion, sometimes it starts out with, with a good intention. And by the way, remember that legalism does, doesn't just exist in a synagogue. Lord knows there's plenty of it to go around in the church as well, right? Uh, it all starts with, uh, much of the time, starts out with a positive, with a, uh, a noble perspective, which is to say, how do I honor God in such and such an area? Um, and it starts out well, and then it kind of takes off, because uh, there's a part of us that's insecure about our relationship with God, so we feel like, well, this is not enough here, what I'm doing, I need to do X, Y, Z more, and in order to be sure I'm really pleasing God. Um, and that's basically the rabbi's perspective. Um, so that you start out with a somewhat defined set of uh, regulations about the dietary laws uh, that are already pretty substantial to begin with in uh, Leviticus uh, 11 and Deuteronomy 14. Uh, and then the rabbis added a whole bunch more uh, to make it even more involved. So that, uh, for instance, today, um, when uh, Orthodox, uh, an Orthodox Jewish community comes to celebrate the Passover in a large hotel, uh, the person who comes and who prepares the kitchen uh, ritually, so that it is kosher, <coughs> called the mashgiach, um, actually comes with a blowtorch and uses the blowtorch on the large cooking pots to make sure that there's not a crumb of uh, treif, that which is not kosher for Passover, in order to be able then to say, okay, we can go ahead and use the cooking pots. And remember that in traditional Judaism, you have three basic uh, sets of dishes. Uh, one is for milk, one is for, for meat, and the third one is for Passover. So I'm not going to park there, but first of all, or, or at least not now, but first of all, look at, at uh, Leviticus chapter 11. Now, when you've heard people talk about uh, the dietary laws, what typically do you hear people say was the reason why God gave the dietary laws, the kosher laws? Health and wellness. Health and wellness. Uh, so, for example, they, they say God um, uh, prohibited the eating of pork because, as you know, uh, pork that is not properly cooked can give you trichinosis, which is a disease having to do with roundworms. Um, if you eat uh, rabbits uh, or rats, not that I imagine any of us are big uh, rabbits, uh, rabbit eater, uh, you can run the risk of a disease called tularemia. Uh, and on and on and on and on. Uh, and people look at the, uh, at the fact that God said, eat only fish that has uh, fins and scales because uh, the fish that don't have fins and scales are sometimes bottom feeders like the carps. 
and you don't know what these critters eat and what gets in their system, who knows, etc. However, the carp, by the way, was uh, poor man's food for Jewish people in, in Europe, which is where we get gefilte fish. In. Um, so that works for part of it. However, when you talk about animals that clearly don't, that there clearly doesn't seem to be a problem with, then you say, okay, the uh, consideration for health and wellness only goes so far, uh, then they break down. Because, for example, you take a horse. Uh, a horse is a clean animal, uh, but according to the prescription in, in the Torah, they were forbidden for the people of Israel to eat. So you have to be able to say, okay, there's really more to this than, than uh, health and wellness kinds of issues. You know, including folks who say that God wanted Israel to be free from the diseases of Egypt, which is true to a point, but there has to be a bigger picture, which is why I had Hadassah read uh, the last few verses uh, in this chapter, okay? So when the Lord speaks uh, about the dietary issues, um, he uses several words, and I wanted to um, talk about them. First of all is sheketz or shakats. I know that's a mouthful. Um, tameh. And kadosh. Okay, um, shakats is translated typically as that which is defiled or unclean. And you say, well, uh, an animal, and the basic prescription for mammals, for example, was that they had to have a split hoof and that they chew their cud. You all know what chewing the cud is. Animals, and it's after after uh, dinner, so you should be okay. Um, you animals, fish. huh? You already mentioned gefilte fish. I already mentioned. Yes, <laughs> it is. Yeah. Uh, chewing the cud means that the animal basically <clears throat> digests the food twice. So they eat it, they digest it. It goes into, in the case of a cow, there are four chambers, and that's why you see the cows standing there chewing and chewing, 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 eight hours a day. That's hard work. Um, so uh, the mammals had to be animals that chew the cud and, and had the split hoof. And so, again, if the issue, the primary issue is not um, health and wellness, then you have to say, okay, there's something else. So shakats has to do with uh, being defiled not morally, although uh, a related word has to do with um, idol worship, but this word here in Leviticus 11 um, has to do with defilement ritually, which simply means uh, God says it, you do it. Not that it makes a whole lot of sense, and to the Israelites it really didn't. It frankly doesn't to us a lot of times. Um, and so 
the animal being unclean is not that there's nothing inherently evil or wrong in it or even physically unclean but because god set up a system uh then you do it and if you don't do it then then you, you become unclean because you're saying god i don't care what you say the other word that's used here um that is tame is unclean and that's typically paired up with another word tahor which means that which is clean now these two words then have are are words that can refer to ritual or moral defilement so for example in 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 uh, ezekiel 36 it speaks about the fact that god view israel as being tameh uh defiled because of their idolatry and bloodshed and and we see in leviticus in uh, uh, ezekiel 36 that god said i'm going to take and I'm going to cleanse you of all your impurities. So here, this word uh, can mean either clean, uh, ritually, or morally. And this word, of course, I hope everybody recognize, recognizes, kadosh, means <clears throat> holy. Now, what does holy mean, Sylvia? Set apart. In what sense? Okay, is your watch holy? Why not? Well, uh, can I come and take your watch? Why not? Okay, it is set apart for you. Um, not that there's anything intrinsically spiritual or moral about the watch. But the idea of holiness starts with two ideas. First of all, um, that God is morally pure. And that we who are his also have to be pure. But first of all, that begins with being set apart. What that means is that none of us looks look at ourselves and say i'm going to be pure it's not possible right yes of course <laughs> um unless unless we see that within the context of my being set apart for god then uh, then pure purity really really is not doesn't have a whole lot of uh it's not anchored because then you say pure according to whose definition but if you if you are if you anchor it in the fact that you are set apart for god then then purity and being clean morally ethically etc makes perfectly good sense why because he's pure he hates sin and therefore if we are set apart for him then we love what he loves, we hate what he hates. Uh, so, my point in going through all of that is simply 
to put the dietary laws in context of the larger laws of, of purity that you find in Leviticus chapter 11 through 15, um, which sometimes makes sense, sometimes they don't. And the purpose of the laws of purity for the people of Israel was simply for them to realize that from the time they got up in the morning till the time they went to bed, everything about them was different from the people around them. We're not talking about ethnic cleansing here. We're talking about spiritual cleansing. So the, the clothing that the people of Israel were to wear had to be different. A, uh, they couldn't wear a mixture of polyester and cotton. Uh, they were to have fringes for the men. Um, when they went to work as farmers, the way they did their farming had to be different. So they couldn't, uh, they couldn't harvest their fields all the way to the end, but they had to leave the corners for the poor to come. Not something that other people did. When it came to relationship, interpersonal relationship, then particularly things having to do with sexual morality, then we have a whole list of uh, prohibitions in Leviticus uh, 18 to 20 that when you read it, you go, oh, Lord have mercy. Who on earth would do that until you realize that God gave the prohibition because that's what the neighbors around them would do. Uh, and the people of Israel were to be set apart in that sense. Um, and even when it came to how you conduct your business, um, if if a uh, the ox falls, etc., etc., God had uh, stipulated the way things were to be done. And then, of course, the holidays, the Moadim, uh, and the worship, and so on and so forth. So the Israelites... Uh, were to have a basic grasp of the fact that they were set apart for God, and that is why, uh, that is the context in which we find these uh, dietary laws, these kosher laws. Um, so in, in God's mind, that is the first and most important thing. So when we'll come to the New Testament, we'll find that Yeshua has the same the same kind of a perspective. Uh so, then, then we. Uh... I have a question. Yes, ma'am. I'm not sure if this is appropriate, please. But in the Torah reading for this week, and you know where it says, I can't remember if it is, if, if the animal dies of itself, you can't eat it, or if he's talking about any of the animals, they can't eat. But either way, he says, but you can give it to the stranger among you, or you can give it to a foreigner. Right. Right. Was it if the animal had died of itself, or was it? The, the animals that they were not allowed to eat. Which one was it that they could give to the foreigner who lived among them? Uh, I believe that the animal that died. Of itself? Yes. Now, here's my thing. I couldn't understand. You know, and, and I'm agreeing with you here. You're talking about it's not primarily for health because otherwise what we'd be saying is, well, you know, God was very interested in the health of the Jewish people. But the foreigner, it didn't matter what happened to them and that right. can't be it. But I still didn't sort of understand if the foreigner that was living among them, right? Now, I don't know if the foreigner was following what they were doing. 
why wouldn't you want to encourage the foreigner who lived among them also to be set apart? And that's what I couldn't understand. Okay, the general principle for the foreigner, the gear that lived among them was that the gear uh, was to be part and parcel of the spiritual life of the Israelite community. So that was the goal. There were very rare exception. One was the Passover. If the, the Israelite, if the ger uh, had not been circumcised, the men, they could not participate until they became circumcised. And this is uh, one of those examples. So again, remember that the exceptions do not uh, define the general principle. Um, you have to say that it, it was God's will for the foreigner living among them uh, to experience God's best because he was very emphatic about the fact that the protection had to be given to the foreigners. In fact, in, in Exodus chapter 22, it states that if, if you oppress the foreigner and the widow and so on, they cry out to me, I will come after you and I will kill you. No problem. Not only that, he said of the foreigner, uh, the Shabbat was not just for the, the, uh, the Israelites, right. but it was for the animals, it right. was for the stranger who lived among you. And that's why to me it really stuck out when he said that you can give this to the foreigner if it dies of itself. I, I haven't been able to sort of figure it out. Well, when you do, give me a call, please. <laughs> uh, th there are things that are puzzling um, but they don't, they don't define the general principle, uh, which is that God wanted the uh, gerim, the, the foreigners, to be protected. Yes, they, Rabbi David. I'm assuming, I was searching for that grace. Deuteronomy 14.21 might be the verse in question, but it's, it's not, it seemed to be, again, I'm just not, I didn't study this in detail, of course, but it talks about if they, if, um, you are not to eat of any animal that dies naturally, although you may let a stranger staying with you eat it. It doesn't seem to necessarily be someone who's part of the community. Um, say. Um, or you can sell it to a foreigner. So it seems like someone who's certainly outside of the community. the community, if you will. It doesn't necessarily erase what you're saying completely, but there does seem to be a distinction. Although it is the gear, um, it's talking about the, the gear within your gates. But it seems to be one translation says... associated with an idol worshiper.
is that we need to be real cautious about extracting anything about God's intentions towards the idol worshippers. Because remember, his, his attitude towards them has always been a desire for them to repent. Um, even though there is no covenant relationship between them, between him and the Nochri, the idol worshipper. All right, so um, uh, in terms of uh, tradition, the rabbis, of course, will take and ex expand and extrapolate. Um, and, and there are some things that are mentioned in Barney Castan's book that I'm not going to, um, to address uh, in detail. Uh, what I wanted to mention um, is how that um, animals that are, in fact, kosher have to be prepared kosherly. Um, and there are two terms, um, well, I'll, I'll, just, uh, I'll just mention one, shechita, that simply means slaughter. Uh, the issue here is how do you prepare an animal in such a way that it is kosher? Well, remember Leviticus 17:11. Yes. Anybody remember? Other somebody other than the brains here. <laughs> uh, Leviticus 17 and that brain too. Uh, not to imply that. All right, I'll stop before I get in trouble. Uh, Leviticus 17:11. Let's turn to that. And let's see, Cheryl, would you read for us, please? For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you on the altar to make it home for your soul. For it is the blood, by reason of the life, that makes it home. So when an animal that is kosher is prepared, what has to happen? You have to drain the blood out, okay? Um, and and Jewish uh, preparation, Jewish killing, is radically different than the killing method that I use for domestic animals. You never have an animal being shot or clubbed over the head. You always have to have the animal uh, slaughtered, which means a sharp knife has to be applied to the throat so that the animal is killed as quickly as possible and that the uh, greatest amount of blood comes forth. And there's emphasis on the need for doing that because it's considered to be kindness to the animal life. In other words, you don't want to prolong the agony of the animal. Uh, so that's... And in, in some rituals they would like cut one leg off eat that leg and keep the animal still alive, cut another leg off, eat the animal, and the animal would be kept alive during that time. This is what the pagans did, of course. Well, the pagans did all kinds of stuff, but uh, I never heard of that, but yeah. I'm not surprised. So, uh, again, this is going back, this is actually pre-Torah, it's going back to the Noahic Covenant, when the Lord said to to uh, uh, when the Lord made a covenant with Noah, 
he said, uh, blood is not for you. He didn't exp uh, stipulate exactly why, but um, blood has to be drained. So uh, if you're someone who enjoys rare meat, guess what? You can't be kosher. Um, and the other, the other uh, aspect of preparing an animal was that the blood has to be drained completely. And often what is involved is that the meat would be put on a draining board and, and uh, soaked, soaked in brine and put on a draining board so that the remainder of the blood is, uh, drains off. And I remember my, my grandma doing that with chicken. Um, I see a hand. Yes, yes ma'am. Um, so does this mean since um, the shooting of the animal would not be something, would not be kosher? Right. Does that mean there can't be a Jewish hunter? Uh, interesting uh, Talmudic um, halakha here or not. Um, Since I'm not a Jewish hunter, uh, my expectation would be that the animal would be shot and then everything possible done to uh, properly slaughter the animal. Um, so, um, again, although that's not ex uh, explicitly defined in the Torah, uh, the rabbis are correct in that they interpret what is in the Torah, Leviticus 17, uh, which I find somewhat ironic because then the rabbis discount uh, blood atonement that comes from the same verse. Go figure. Who said that people are consistent? Um, so that's basically... A, a quickie uh, overview of, of the laws of Kashrut. Uh, as I mentioned before, the rabbis also then uh, extrapolated uh, from uh, a verse in the Torah that said, you shall not seethe a kid in its mother's milk, uh, meaning that you cannot uh, take, take a, a young goat and uh, after it's been killed and use the milk from the mother to, with which to uh, saute it or marinate it. Um, we really don't know for sure why, other than, again, as Michael mentioned earlier, the pagans had all kinds of bizarre uh, customs. It's possible that this was part of their fertility rite. Uh, who knows? But, yeah. That's, that's part of the respect for the animal, too. Right. That you don't do that. Right. It's cruel. Yeah, it's, 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 it, it is, yeah, it is cruel, that's right. Yeah. Uh, because you are being indifferent to the normal mother, uh, mother-kid uh, bonds. Uh, so the rabbis extrapolated from that that you cannot have, you cannot eat meat and milk at the same time. Um, which means that you have to allow some, some time, five hours, I think, between the time that you eat uh, meat and the time that you eat milk or vice versa. Um, 
and and so you have to have a separate set of dishes for this, separate set of dishes for that, um, which separate refrigeration, sep all of that, which which also means that you run into a basic problem with Father Abraham because he killed uh, the, the the animal, the calf, the calf, and presented it in in milk to the three visitors. Um, hmm? Rabbis say they waited. Yeah, right. The rabbis say that that he he cooked one thing and then he waited five hours and then uh, etc. Uh, yeah. Does that mean a kosher person would not eat beef stroganoff? Beef stroganoff, uh, cheese cheeseburger, etc. etc. Like not even if they're eating. Not even if they're eating like a steak dinner, would they have cream in their coffee? Yeah, right. They have a special cream. Yeah, it's it is very strict, and so part of the issue is that um, when you go to a restaurant, uh, even even a fast food joint like McDonald's, part of the message you're saying to a Jewish person is, I do not keep rabbinically kosher. Sure. What you're what you're asking, meat from one animal but milk from a different animal? Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, not the same animal. I mean, he, they could, the, the animal that used milk from was probably alive, and the and the beef is dead. And so they're different, you know. Like you you're combining dairy and beef, so that's Yeah, the big picture is no beef and no beef and dairy together in that at the same time. So our, our approach at the Yeshuatzion is to, uh, when we have our onigs and, and special meals, the Passover, so on, uh, we do what we call the biblical, biblically kosher. So uh, we ask that people not bring uh, pork or shellfish uh, of, of any kind, and, and we don't stand over them and say, well, did you prepare it kosherly? Uh, fairly basic, uh, because that we feel like that's honoring the spirit of the law, so to speak. All right, then, uh, of course, when you come to the New Testament, to, to the New Covenant, Brit HaChadasha, um, you have a couple of passages that seem to suggest that, um, that these dietary regulations are irrelevant, and one of those of course, is Mark 7. So let's read Mark 7. We're not going to read the whole chapter. Um, let's see. We just need to read a few verses. Uh, actually, just a bit before. Chapter 7, verse 1. Let's read verses 7, um, 1 to verse 5. And Mary, would you read that for us, please? The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Yeshua and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders, 
when they came, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitches, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Yeshua, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? Instead of eating their food with unclean hands, he replied. Hang on. Let's pause there. Uh, we need to understand the context. Is this suggesting that Yeshua's disciples were eating like pigs? Why not? It has nothing to do with hygiene. Okay, why? It had to do with their concept of the extended purity laws into the home. Okay. And because they did the um, rituals that pertained to the temple, pertained to the homes here. Table was an altar, and your food was a sacrifice, and you were the high priest, and therefore, what did the high priest do before he sacrificed? He washed his hands. Correct. Therefore, it was it made you spiritually um. Well, they go further than that, but it's supposed to make you spiritually, make you pure to partake of the sacrifice of the food. Right. Um. So it had to do again with the idea of purity and defilement. Right. Remember, remember that when the Levites and priests came to minister in the tabernacle or in the temple. They had to wash their hands and sometimes their their bodies and clothes uh, in the laver. And the Lord said, you don't do that. You're dead meat. Uh, because they needed to... Um, and also, uh, uh, there were occasions when the priest needed to do that, plus uh, they needed to bring a sacrifice, such as on, on, on Yom Kippur, the day of... A, the Day of Atonement, um, and so um, as as Joanne was saying, uh, in the minds of the rabbis, food is not just sitting down and, and gobbling a bunch of food, but food is part of your relationship with God, which is, by the way, a very Jewish thing. You know, everything um, they try to kill us, God wouldn't let them. Now let's eat. All right, um, hang on, I see that hand. Um, so the uh, family uh, the family table was considered to be an altar uh, because you would not just dive on the food but you would first of all um, pray but even before you prayed you would do what we do at the Passover Seder remember that before we get started there's a ceremonial washing of the hands again it's not for hygiene because you come your hands are filthy but ceremonial. Um, and the Pharisees at that time were really, really, really obsessed with ritual purity. Uh, they took what the Torah said and they extrapolated. So you had not one degree of uh, impurity. You had three degrees of impurity. So, for example, you touched a dead body. If, if somebody touched a dead body, and they picked up the cup and they set it down, and then you came and and touched the cup, then you became defiled, and then when you touched something else, it became defiled. Um, and so Yeshua's disciples were not like the Pharisees. They were not uh, consumed with the minutia of stuff. Not that necessarily they, uh, they ridiculed uh, uh, Pharisaic law. In fact, Yeshua and his disciples function in a Pharisaical system. 
for example, the Passover and the, the Shabbat uh, were defined by the Pharisees. But there were, th- there were times when Yeshua looked at the system and said, you know, this is hooey. You, you guys are taking something and squeezing the spiritual life out of it. Okay, Maurice, you've been patient. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. I, I don't mean to cut a fine point on this, but... But you will. But I will. And that is, even though, I mean, what John is saying is correct about the home. It says here, now the Pharisees and some of the Torah scholars who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Yeshua. So how, you know, I don't find it explicitly talks about a home. They had come from Jerusalem. And why, why is Jerusalem mentioned that they came from Jerusalem? Well, I can tell you why. Because uh, Yeshua was up in Galilee, and they came down from Jerusalem because they saw themselves as as God's uh, police to sort out any funky teacher who came down the pike and make sure that they were not uh, prophesying uh, false teaching, which is what Deuteronomy said. If somebody prophesies something that leads you astray, you kill him. So they took that upon themselves and you see a number of references in the Gospels where they did that. They undertook uh, to call Yeshua to be accountable. And, and so that's why they're doing that. And you think then this is just a compilation of they've noticed over the months or whatever when they went to different people's homes and the one set of um, disciples that didn't do the ritual washing were Yeshua's disciples, whereas John's disciples did, and so they decided to call him to account. That's, that's basically it. Th- these guys... These guys look for all kinds of ways to demonstrate the fact that Yeshua was bogus. Just pointing out, Maurice, it says here, and they saw that some of his disciples were eating bread, right, with unclean hands. Right, but therefore, they were there long enough to observe that they launched into the bread without going through. Right, but here's what I think is fascinating. Because they don't give up, they don't say where this is happening. Right. So it means they've just observed it over the times. And we know that John's disciples still maintain that ritual washing. Right. But Yeshua's disciples did not maintain that ritual washing. Ritual washing. Which I think is interesting in that they would have been mingling together in different people's homes. Right. And some would have been doing it and some would not be doing it. I mean, I think it was a fairly interesting sort of Even among Yeshua's disciples, only some did and some didn't. Yeah. And so, so the issue is... Uh, as we, we see in the gospel accounts that when Yeshua was invited to someone's house the Pharisees would be there or Yeshua went to, to a Pharisee's house and so on um, so um, then, then um, when Yeshua is with his disciples um, what is his approach to this issue does he say uh, yeah, the, you know, these guys have a point. You guys really need to, to watch your P's and Q's and, and wash ritually, etc., etc. What does he say? He doesn't say anything. No. About? Just his own disciples. Right. Well, it says some wash and some don't. No, but, but continue with, with the rest of, of the chapter. He doesn't speak to the Pharisees. He speaks to the Pharisees. I'm asking, are you talking about what he says to his disciples? <coughs> Or to the Torah scholars. And 17, the... verse 17, please. Oh, okay. I know where you're going now. Thank you. <laughs> it's very reassuring. <laughs> uh, so, um, Yeshua is saying to them, look, 
look, what really, really, really makes a person unclean is not what goes in the mouth, but what comes out of the mouth. Why? Because what's really, what is God really after in the scheme of things? The heart. It's a, it, it's it's the heart. It's the motivation, and you see that all the way from from First uh, First Samuel 15, uh, when where where we see that that uh, that Samuel is saying to Saul, God is not interested in your goofy sacrifices. Uh, he is interested in obedience, and you see that uh, into into the Psalms. You see that with with the prophets. And you see Yeshua basically making the same point that what really matters is what's in a person's heart. Yeah. And he says when it when it comes to when it co- when it comes to food, think about think about the biology. Now, folks, bear with me because that was my background, and this you may find this kind of uh, unsightly. Uh, but he's saying to them, look, you sit down and have a burger or. Uh, a veggie burger or whatever you're going to eat. Um, it, it goes through your digestive system and the, the uh, unclean stuff emerges and it goes into the place where all other unclean stuff emerge, i.e. the toilet. And so his point is, regardless of whether you ate whatever it is you ate, uh, the result is when it comes out, uh, it goes into the latrine, it goes into the party, whatever, uh, and the uncleanness goes away. So, relatively speaking, relatively speaking, he, now he's not, again, uh, understand that Yeshua is not giving a teaching about dietary laws here. And, and we have to understand the context. The context is, what is it that defiles a person? Spiritually. spiritually, correct. What defiles a person spiritually is what's rooting around in his heart and what comes out that defiles not only him, but defiles other people around him. And he says, park uh, major in the majors. Uh, focus on what really defiles a person spiritually. Because the food is what the food is, and even if you goofed up and decided to have pork chops it, it'll come out and and it will it, it will come out into the uh, into the toilet so um, is he really saying anything about the kosher laws the dietary laws he's not saying anything again remember that the issue was not at the beginning of, of the conversation in, in, in verse 1 the issue was not your disciples are eating pork chops. The issue was your disciples are not bothering to take care so that they're ritually clean when they sit down to eat a meal. Uh, why? Because that's uh, reflective of their relationship with God and so on and so forth. So Yeshua is talking in those terms. Now, then we come to the last statement in verse 19. Steve. For it does not enter into the heart, but into the stomach, and then goes out into the sewer, cleansing all foods. Okay. 
And you're reading from what translation? TLV. TLV. Now, it's interesting. What is the standard, uh, uh, or at least common, um, the common is declared. And you, the TLV has... Uh, yeah, um, it it uh, uh, cleanses all things. Or oh, I'm sorry, what was... Cleansing. Cleansing, thank you. Cleansing. Now, you might say, well, uh, okay, is there a difference? Huge difference. Because in one case, and by the way, the, the Greek there is very brief. And, and, and Mark's comment is an editorial comment on Yeshua's words. Mark felt like he needed to elaborate and amplify a little bit so that people would understand. And, and we believe that Mark is writing for a primarily Gentile audience. So he puts on this little comment that says, oh, by the way, what Yeshua meant is when the stuff goes out, uh, the foods are, are clean because whatever is unclean goes out. So uh, in one case you're saying that the foods are cleansed because whatever is unclean goes out. In this case, which is what you often hear, is they add the phrase, Jesus, Yeshua, declared all foods to be clean. Now that is an editorial upon an editorial, which in, this, in my mind is highly unjustified, because Yeshua is not talking about foods. He's not talking about foods being clean or unclean per se. He's talking about what really makes a person clean or unclean. So this is not a teaching about the dietary laws. It is a teaching about what really makes a person clean and unclean. And unfortunately, this is the anti-Torah bias that you get among, some, uh, among many believers who refuse to take what's really there and feel like they need to elaborate on it. Keeping it in the context. Keep, keeping it out of, uh, taking it out of context, yeah. Now, we have just a few minutes to zip through Peter's um, vision, and so let's, let's turn to Acts chapter 10. And we'll read a few verses just for, for the sake of context. So, okay, let's pick up um, um, verse 9. And, and I'll, I'll read uh, kind of as we're going along here. All right, noon. Uh, Cornelius, Cornelius' servants um, are approaching Yafo, which is where Tel Aviv is, by the way. Um, and Peter gets hungry. 
and he's waiting for the meal to be prepared. Um, and he goes up to the roof. He catches a few winks, and God gives him a vision. Now, it's interesting that the vision has to be about food, right? If Peter was about to get a haircut, then the vision might have been about getting your hair cut. God uses the current circumstances to get people's attention. So he has a vision. And if you were a first century Jew, what Peter saw was not a dream. It was a nightmare. Think about it. Here, here is a, a sheet with all kinds of critters on it. Uh, snakes, because that's crawling things. Uh, the Greek word there. Um, herpeton is the word that, that we use for the study of snakes, herpetology. So snakes and uh, roly-polies and uh, uh, rats and, and other delicious critters. And God says to him, get up, kill and eat. Now, notice how the language is used. He doesn't say, if you're in the mood, Peter, get up and eat. But the fact that you have these three verbs all together means that there's urgency. Peter, get up, kill, and eat. Because God wants him to understand that this is important stuff. And what is Peter's response? Horror. Okay. Beside, uh, and how did this horror express itself? And furthermore, you're the one that laid down all these laws. And I'm just trying to do what you tell me, and now you're telling me to transgress these laws. So you understand why I say that this was not a, a dream, it was a nightmare. By the way, I'm going to run a few minutes over just to give you... Uh, yeah. Just a, just a quick thing. Uh, for Stuart, to your point earlier, if if Yeshua had been saying thus he had been declaring that all foods were now kosher, right? Peter would not, Peter was there, he would have, if that's what he understood, he would not be making these comments now about this. I, I agree with you, but, but critics then would say, well, uh, Peter didn't just, didn't get it. There were lots of things that Peter didn't get. And so, however, we have other ammunition, which we'll discuss the next couple of Wednesdays. Um, but the short version is Peter says, Lord, forget it. And, and what does God do? He does it three times. He does it three times. Why three times? In the mouth of two or three witnesses, something has happened. Well, that? Three men come to his house. Okay, three men come to his house. What did Yeshua say to him um, at, at the end of the Gospel of John? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? You know, with Peter, it had to be, okay, do you get it? Do you get it? Do you really get it? And by the way, a threefold repetition in Scripture is always indicative of as much uh, emphasis as you can give it. Um, three times, and what does the Lord say to him? Does the Lord say to him, oh, by the way, you are now free to go and have a... a uh, 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 Ham sandwich. Ham sandwich and and cheese uh, and cheese bacon whatever, 
Uh, what does the Lord say? Okay, so what does that mean when he says God has cleansed? Is that what Yeshua is supposedly saying here? Um, cleansed. You must not consider unholy, which is set apart. You must not consider as not being set apart. Okay, then people can still make the argument that that holy uh, in the Torah had to do with food. Okay. Um, then Peter, when he wakes up, does God say to him, "Okay, uh, Peter, here's ham and cheese sandwich. Go at it." He doesn't take it from me having to do with food. Okay. What does the Spirit of God tell him? There's three men. Go with them. The three men. Okay. So whatever the meaning is of cleansed, what would it be about? It would be about people. Okay? Then, uh, when Peter gets up and Cornelius' house, and he says, oh, let me tell you about this vision that I had. I was asleep and so on and so forth. What does he say to them about the vision? Let's, let's look at uh, towards the last part of uh, chapter 10 here. Thirty-four and thirty-five. Oh, twenty-seven. You sure you don't want twenty-seven? Uh, no, I don't want twenty-seven. It's my constitutional right to. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I now understand that God is not the Father of Jesus favorites. Now I understand that God doesn't have favorites, and that He wants all people to be saved. So, Peter is explaining the meaning of the vision. And what does he say? As a result of the vision, I now get. What do I now understand? Well, earlier on, he says, God has shown me that I should call no one, no one. Okay. Unholy or Correct. Okay. And and also here, he says, uh, now I understand that God wants everybody yeah. to be saved. Now, what was the big deal about the Gentiles being saved? They were supposed to be unclean. Okay. So Yeshua told the disciples, go into all the world, make disciples. They got that. They also, of the nations, they also understood that the prophets predicted the salvation of the Gentiles. Yes. They understood that. So what was the problem? The Gentiles yes. were not people Their assumption, no. Their assumption was, yes, God wants to save these Gentiles. But they have to become like us. Oh yeah. They have to convert to Judaism and become a part of Israel, and because that's the way God does business, and that's the way God does business with us, so He has to do the same business with them. Yes, sir. Well, the disciples were learning from Yeshua, and Yeshua had told them, "Don't go to the Gentiles." Correct. So they had. You know, the next message till the Peter got the story straight. Yes and no. Um, the initial message that Yeshua gave them was for those specific trips that they took, ministry trips, where he says, don't go to the nations. Uh, 
Huh? Matthew 10. You're Matthew 10, yes. But but in in uh, uh, the last words that Yeshua gave them was, you bet, go to the nations. So the disciples are the quandary. They know that Gentiles need to be saved. They have no clue what that's supposed to look like because the moment you step into a Gentile's house, you became ritually unclean, which meant you could not go uh, and participate in in corporate worship. Now, what about verse 28, though? Because I think that kind of is an important verse. Peter says that it's not even permitted for him to enter the Gentile's house, their domicile. So <clears throat> he's not saying that from the Torah, because the Torah doesn't say that that anymore. Is that just from tradition? You bet. That the Jewish tradition was they weren't permitted to enter a Gentile's house. Correct. So. And, again, and that again, was their, their trying to keep that testimony uh, within the Jewish community or the Jewish um, observant community, per se. Well, it wasn't just that. It wasn't just for the sake of outsiders. It was for the sake of them practicing uh, the Torah as they understood God wanted them to do. It was a sort of a fence rule to make sure that it didn't Correct. in any way. C correct. Remember, remember the way that uh, the Lord worked with um, outsiders, uh, non-Jews. They were welcome to become part of the Israelite community. And, and even when they were outside of Israel, uh, God still permitted people to, to mingle as long as the Gentiles got rid of, of their idol worship. So you have someone like Ruth the Moabite, uh, who not only is integrated into into Israel, but she becomes the um, uh, forerunner of David and forerunner of the Messiah. Yes, sir. The clincher was when uh, uh, Cornelius's household received the Holy Spirit. Right. That was a clincher. That it, you know that explained everything about. It. Right, and so when he comes back to Jerusalem and he presents what happened to the mothership, the, the congregation there, uh, he says to them, look, this is proof positive that the Spirit of God came upon us, upon them, like it came upon us, and it came upon them as Gentiles, as Gentiles. So that means that God doesn't require Gentiles to become Jews to become part of Israel in order for them to be saved. So well, as Ruth we, was still referred to as the Moabite. Correct, correct. And and that's something we talk about a lot at Yeshua Tzion because we encourage folks to be comfortable in their own skin, to say, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made as a Jew or as a Gentile. Whoever God made me, I like that. And And that's precious to me. I don't want to become something that God didn't make me. So, a short version of that, and we'll, we'll finish here real quick. The short version is, does Peter's vision have anything to do about food? No. From the moment he has the vision, there's nothing else mentioned about, about dietary laws. There's nothing else mentioned about what kind of food you should eat or shouldn't eat, etc., etc. So, the meaning of the vision... Is about people. And also Peter never, it says here, Peter, he never puzzled. It's not like he said, ah, oh, the Lord is telling me this is now. Right. 
He's puzzled, well, what could this mean? Right. So he said he didn't take it. No, no, no. And, and we'll see in the next couple of weeks, uh, the disciples, the fir first century Jewish disciples of Yeshua, uh, did not in any way, shape, or form understand either Yeshua's words in Mark 7 or Peter's vision to mean that the dietary laws have been thrown away. In fact, that was something they continued to do as part of their faithfulness to God. So, um, what, what we uh, put forth for people of our congregational mishpacha is simply this. A, um, we keep biblical kosher as part of our corporate culture. Uh, when we have meals together, that's what we do. Uh, we encourage everybody to do as they feel led, but, well, not just privately, we encourage people to take on the culture that we do when we meet together and bring it home. Right. So, because uh, our thought is simply is, if God has called you to become part of Yeshua Tzion, and this is what we partake of corporately, then at some point it would make sense, since you have embraced the corporate culture, then to say, okay, this is something I want to embrace and put into practice in my life, in my family, in my house. It's consistency. What what we do here together corporately, uh, we endeavor to be consistent then in how we apply it in, into our home situation. And of course, we don't have the kosher police um, because God is a righteous judge. However, we put that out and simply say, look, uh, God has made you part of our mishpacha. Uh, please consider taking what we do corporately and, and bring it into your house and into a part of your family uh, culture. Yeah. And then over the years, if you go back centuries and centuries, the Jewish people, by following all these guidelines, they did not experience the horrors of people who were living in the world and got diseased and died. The Jewish people, they did not contract those diseases that they got this. Well, the, the, God has kept Israel because God's love and secondarily because of God's commitment to follow God's commandments. Uh, but first of all, God's love. Okay, um, let's pause here and we've run late and for which I humbly... Apologize, and uh, Mr. Zims, would you finish for us, sir? Father, we are truly thankful that you were among us tonight. You brought us all together. We come to you, 
book called Father Weird, there's type of who you are, what you've done for us, and that you have that sense for us, even when we're screwed. And I thank you now, Father, that you will be with us through the remainder of this evening, and that you will go with us tonight. Father, we ask that through the Spirit that you burden things into our memories that you want us to remain with. For these things we ask in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Amen. Amen.